Hey, Nick, always a great pleasure to see you. A huge thanks for coming on. Can you just tell the little the viewers a little bit about you first, please? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Uh, again, actually, uh, the last time we did this was super fun, so I'm, I'm happy to do it again. Uh, yeah, Nick McKinley, I'm the founder and CEO of Deliver Fund. I'm a former uh, military special operator, former CIA operative, and now uh, on top of some other things that I do in the tech entrepreneur space, I run the largest counter human trafficking company on the planet called Deliver Fund. And Nick, you know, you, you told us previously about your story and how you came on this path. Could you just give a summary of that before we get to Sound of Freedom? Yeah, so when I was working at the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, I was involved in a case overseas where we had what I like to call uh, smoking gun intel on the modern uh, on uh, some modern slavery and what we found in doing that work uh, and both working with uh, our, our British counterparts and working with uh, the other Five Eyes countries, we very quickly learned that nobody really had the ball on this issue. It was a it was an issue that everybody cared about, but there was there was really no centralized uh, hub for fighting it in the way that there was terrorism, right? So we decided that what we needed to do was was really take our skills and and the technology and methodologies that we'd learned in the fight against terrorism and start applying those to the fight against human trafficking. And the original thesis of the company was looking at the overseas issue of human trafficking, but let's go with let's go with transportation. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, in, in modern slavery. So within within that, we really started looking at the overseas issue. And what we found was that the predominant market for modern slavery within westernized societies was actually in those Western countries. It wasn't something that was happening in Thailand and Cambodia at the same scale it was happening in the United States of America. So we pivoted the company to start focusing on that issue specifically. Okay, and I'm, I'm hearing me echo, um, Nick. Are the viewers hearing me echo as well? What, what's, um, what receiving device are you using, Nick, for your audio? Uh, just the uh, just the speakers, but I can grab uh, some uh, headphones real quick if that uh, that'll work. Oh, that'd be you. great. Thank you. Yeah, let's try that. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Let, I'm just going to check my settings as well. I've got echo cancellation on. Um, okay, is that better? Five thousand. Four thousand. Yep. All right, we're good. We're good. Right, we're Thanks good. for that. Thanks for that. Excellent. No worries. Yeah. All right. So th there was a story, Nick, you know, of something that you experienced yourself that made you go on this path. Do you want to tell us that story? The the story was in uh, Lashkargah, Afghanistan, and we had a uh, individual from the uh, local area and i got to be obviously a little bit careful about what i say here because the the cia has only cleared me to to tell certain aspects of it but uh we had somebody from the local area that we were working with and they had again 
what I like to call smoking gun intelligence on uh, a, a modern slaveholder really is what they were. And they were, they were selling children and nobody really cared what they, what, or that the, the slaveholder didn't care what they used the children for. He was just selling children to anybody who needed them. So what we figured out was that this slaveholder was selling children to a bomb maker and we were interested in the bomb maker but then it very quickly became a, a, a situation where we decided that well let's go ahead and pivot this intel so that we can send it to somebody who's dealing with the modern slavery issue just like we were dealing with the counterterrorism issue and we couldn't find anybody after a period of weeks right? and keep in mind like this isn't we weren't civilians doing this. We were CIA operatives doing this. And we figured out that there was really no place to put this intel. And that's what made me really decide that I needed to, I need to do something about this. It was, it was the proverbial fork in the road. And so I left the central intelligence agency and started deliver fund specifically to address the issue. So you're saying that there are people out there that procure kids to test bombs they'll yes they're procuring children they're procuring adults they're 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 really gaining control of somebody through force fraud or coercion in and selling them for any use that somebody might want in the in the westernized countries that's pre, that's predominantly uh, commercial sex services in other countries i think you're going to talk about the the pig butchering issue uh, you've got you know, people locked in call centers in the South China Sea. You've got people who are enslaved on on fishing ships. Uh, you've got people making bricks in India. I mean, it, it's it's all types of 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 uses. And when you look at the modern slavery issue, it's all forced labor. The only question is, what kind of forced labor? Is it commercial sex forced labor? Is it forced physical labor is it forced essentially mental labor as in the pig butchering issue uh, is it forced uh, forced terrorism i mean we even have situations where you have uh, terrorist organizations who will grab the the daughter or son of a of, of a mother and then tell the mother that they're going to kill the daughter or son if they don't go blow themselves up We've, we've even seen that. So, so yeah, when we look at the modern slavery issue, it's all forced labor. So uh, the darkest side of this then is, is using people to test bombs. Is that as dark as it gets? I don't think that's as dark as it gets. We've seen what we were working in Ukraine before the war kicked off and we saw some, some pretty, uh, pretty terrible, uh, uh, modern slavery that was happening in that area. But we also, w when you look at the, the, the problem that everybody should be focused on is what is most relevant to them. So if you live in London, if you live in New York City, there's a completely different type of human trafficking that, or, pardon me, of, of modern slavery that your children are vulnerable to as opposed to what you'll experience in, say, India or Dubai. So, you know, I'm about to have a kid uh, here any day now. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, perhaps that's why watching The Sound of Freedom affected me all the more. Just from the get-go where the dad is tricked 
by that lady gazelle into leaving the kids she says they're self-conscious around you can you come back at seven o'clock he comes back and he's pounding on the door and they've cleared out and he pounds on the next door and he pounds on the next door your heart breaks at that moment and it, it just boggles the mind that people can do these things to kids that young because he even said when he signed up for this he thought kids meant 16 17 year olds i watched him in an interview i've watched several of his interviews recently tim ballard and he said when he was seeing videos of four-year-olds and five-year-olds and in particular there was a video of a five-year-old with an act being performed and it looked at one point as if the kid's body was snapping in half it's like my brain can't compute this um what what you know when did you watch it and what was your gut reaction i watched it a couple of weeks ago and it makes you just want to get out there and do something about it i mean you're already out there doing stuff about it it's like a call to action isn't it well so i haven't seen it uh because that would be like you watching a uh, a movie about uh, a podcast host uh this is something i live every single day and my team lives every single day. So, you know, we don't really need to go watch movies about it. Um, and it's important to understand, though, that, um, you know, I've, I've seen clips and and obviously my inbox has been blown up about it. It's important to understand that we have moves out my face on a true story or, you know, relatively close to a true story, but they're still movies. So when you have you know, a, a story about, about modern slavery that's happening in Colombia. that's, that's not really applicable to you in the UK because it, again, it's, it's a completely different type of human trafficking. The predominance of human trafficking that happens in Westernized societies and especially in English speaking countries is children being recruited and groomed through social media. It's it's predators contacting children on social media. And there's also a, a distinction between child exploitation and modern slavery. Unfortunately, most child exploitation is not done by, uh, you know, people who've kidnapped children. Now, that does happen, but it's 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 very rare. In fact, in the United States, you have uh, twice the chance of getting struck by lightning as you do a, a stranger abducting your child. Most child abductions happen by people that the child know and people that the child uh, trust. So that's that's more your human or more your your child exploitation side as opposed to modern slavery. And when we talk about the modern slavery piece, we're predominantly talking about between, say, 12 and 16, 17, you know, 18 year old, predominantly females, even though it does happen to, to boys as well. Not so much men. We're predominantly talking about that age of teenage, predominantly girls who are being recruited and groomed through the Internet by by predators. Now, those predators aren't as much looking to make videos of them as they are willing to to rent their bodies out to customers by the hour. And it's horrendous. And these people who prey on those teenagers sentences need to be really increased for them because the whole justice system is upside down but at risk of extrapolating something happened to two of our podcast guests i think it was the end of last year they're a couple kira and lee marvin 
and they took their kid, their baby, to London to visit some family members. They're from Manchester, which is uh, two hours on the train north of London. And she was uh, outside a busy station, a busy train station. She turned around for just a few seconds. And when she turned back to the kid, and we put pictures up of the seat, the seats, this transporter had unbuckled the seats and was lifting the kid out of the seat. Now, her partner, Lee Marvin, is a big guy, six foot three, well-built guy. And out of nowhere, a second transporter just bumps into him, throws his arms up in the air and says, welcome to London, giving his accomplice time to disappear into the busy London traffic. I can't imagine how that story would have ended if she hadn't turned around, if they'd have got the kid. And unfortunately that's the the reality of the the situation that we're we're dealing with so how did how did that modern slate holder how did they uh what what it what was it that they were trying to to procure the kid for it could be adoption uh adoption uh and and selling adoptions is a is a big business it could be for child exploitation. It could be to try to get money out of the parents later. It could be any number of things. Uh, but that's that's where you know the vigilance of parents is is a it's a strange dichotomy because you cannot as a parent you cannot be vigilant all the time. I have I have a couple of children myself, and and you you just you can't watch two at the same time, right? Or, or not turn around and not turn your back. Uh, but it's it's extremely, like that type of situation is actually pretty rare. Uh, and, and usually it's an organized crime issue around kidnapping ransom, uh, trying to get money from people as opposed to actually trying to exploit the child. It's it's more the child who is contacted by that that predator through the internet who starts talking to them and saying, "Hey, you know, oh yeah, you know, the your dad isn't letting you wear the miniskirt to uh, to the shopping center because he's just trying to keep you from growing up, and you're so beautiful." And here, let me send you let me send you some gifts, and and then. It, that happens over a period of weeks to months and, and what is a, an emotional manipulation. And then eventually they will ask the child to meet them somewhere. And, and you got to think about it from a business perspective, right? We can get really emotional and upset about, about these types of issues. But one of the things I like to say is that tears do nothing for the, for these victims. What helps them is cold calculating strategy. And, 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 and fighting the problem at the scale it exists, not just one, one individual piece. Uh, I get asked why we at Deliver Fund don't go do, you know, operations overseas and things like that. I got 30 combat deployments under my belt to some of the worst places in the world. Uh, I understand as much about kicking doors as anybody alive. We don't go do that work because it's not scalable. One person, I put a team on a plane, we go do it, we go do an operation, three months go by, voila, we're done, we helped one child. 
well, what if we can provide the data and intelligence to be able to to work with all law enforcement officers simultaneously? And then they can go do the job. And by the way, that actually gets the human trafficker arrested and convicted. And so we currently work with over just here in the United States, over 600 law enforcement agencies simultaneously. That is way bigger impact and scale than anything that I could do or my team could do just by ourselves. So we really tend to look at that issue because if you have human uh, Transport. If you have modern slaveholders that are um, that are contacting children online, and then law enforcement is focusing on that issue, and then you have in your in your case of the friends that you had, you have a, a child who's actually abducted. Well, those law enforcement officers, there's only a few of them. So where do they spend their time? Well, they should probably be spending their time working that child abduction case as opposed to that modern slavery case. So what we try to do is eliminate that modern slaveholder so they can never talk to the child in the first place. So we can free up the law enforcement resources to be able to focus on the issues that are, are harder for them to get to the bottom of, which is the child abduction issues. All right, let me just do a quick recap for the viewers then. We're here with Nick McKinley. If you have watched The Sound of Freedom, which is a movie based on the true life story of Tim Ballard. Nick has experienced the similar things and has been on many operations. And we're gonna, we're gonna get to more of that. We are having to weigh our words very carefully because when it comes to this subject matter, algorithmic strangulation is in full effect. YouTube has artificial intelligence watching absolutely everything we say. So we're saying human transporters and you know um, human transportation instead of the more obvious word, the, and for the P word, we're saying adults who are attracted to kids. Now, one of the things Tim Ballard said when he watched those, because he was assigned from, I think it was counterterrorism over to watching the videos of what adults attracted to kids did to kids. Mm -hmm. And he said every time he watched a video, it put a, a hole in his head. It like scorched a hole in his head to the point where he now has over a thousand holes in his head from watching these movies. Mm. Now, you know, earlier on, you said, you know, you, you've done multiple operations. You've had to come encounter these situations and these people. When you first start doing this, Nick, what are the effects on you psychologically and viewers as well? Cause we are live. Please put any questions for Nick in the chat, wherever you are watching this in the world and we'll put them to him. Cheers. So what, what is being referred to is a term called vicarious trauma, and it's the human brain. When the human brain sees another human experience trauma, it's, it's very much the same as that, as you experiencing that trauma. Now it's, it's not the, it's not the exact same level, but when you, when you do it on, in aggregate, it ends up, it ends up essentially tricking your brain into thinking that it experienced the same trauma. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. So, uh, and that's a survival mechanism that God built into our brains. So, because if you watch somebody get eaten by a lion, then you say, Oh, well, if I want my lineage to survive, I need to make sure I don't get eaten by a lion. And so, so you, you learn that survival trauma. The problem with, with the, 
internet connected technologies is that now you can experience vicarious trauma at scale. Now I'm a, a little bit different and because I came from a special ops background in the military, right? Very, very highly selective. And then was an operative at the central intelligence agency where I believe Tim was an analyst. And the difference is that we are very specially selected for a cognitive ability to be able to handle that. So while the things that I've seen in fighting modern slavery are, are pretty, pretty terrible, nothing compared to what I saw in combat. Uh, uh, and that was significantly worse. So you just develop an ability to compartmentalize without it and you develop coping mechanisms. Uh, so I make sure that I keep my brain healthy by making sure I go out and do things I like. So I ski and I rock climb and I, uh, I'm getting back into skydiving. Uh, it's been, been a minute since, uh, since I did that. And I, I go do those things that I enjoy to, to essentially de-stress, but I also stay in shape. I watch my diet. I don't drink because I have head trauma from combat. So I, I, I don't really have the brain cells to lose. Uh, mm -hmm. so I, I do all of these different things to, to keep myself healthy. And I can say the same thing for my team and the analysts who work on my team, you know, former law enforcement detectives and former intelligence analysts for JSOC who, who have, have learned to do this over a period of decades. And when we started doing this work, it wasn't our first turn at the wheel. We'd been, we'd been doing this stuff, you know, dealing with this type of traumatic, uh, these types of traumatic situations since we were in our early twenties. So by the time we started doing this in 2014, it was, it was just another target set to us. Uh, but you bring up a very important point about vicarious trauma. One of the things that we're working on the, on the technology side is making it so that law enforcement officers who are not specially selected for cognitive ability to be able to handle that kind of trauma, we have these incredibly brave law enforcement officers who know that by getting into this type of work, it's going to psychologically affect them and it's probably going to affect their marriage and their personal relationships with friends and their relationship with their wife and their relationship with their parents. Like they know that because they've watched that happen to their friends. So think, think about how brave they have to be to say, you know what this, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight this despite the fact that I know it's probably going to be detrimental to my health. So one of the technologies that we're working on and we're very close to finishing is the ability for computers to detect what currently law enforcement officers have to manually detect so that we can reduce the aggregate exposure to those law enforcement officers and to our industry partners so they can find those modern slaveholders better, faster and cheaper. All right. So we've got a few questions come in. Sazabur, uh, thanks for the question. You're being asked, is there a prevalence of this activity in Hollywood? I don't think there's a bigger prevalence of this activity in Hollywood than there is in society in general. I think there's a bigger spotlight on this activity in Hollywood because we all tend to look that direction. So the question is, is there more of it happening or is it just that it's easier to see? And from what we've seen in our data, and we have the largest counter human trafficking database on the planet, uh, we're talking billions of points of interest on the modern slave issue as it's happening in real time. Uh, we don't see we, we don't see bigger hotspots in, you know, Hollywood, California than we see really anywhere else. I just think that within the public's mind, 
it's a bigger issue there because there's more of a focus on it. Because one of the themes of The Sound of Freedom was that America was the biggest consumer of the videos and also it was a top target destination for the kids. Is that because America is one of the wealthiest countries in the world? That So it's, it's like the target market for all things like drugs and everything else? Yes, that that is that is why that is happening. And that is true that America is the yeah, dollar for dollar. It's the largest modern slavery economy uh, on, in the world. It's also when we talk about the child exploitation piece and human trafficking and child exploitation are two different things. Modern slavery and child exploitation are two separate things. So we do. Um, but but there's a lot of overlap between the two. And when we talk on the child commercial sexual exploitation piece, the United States of America is the biggest consumer by, uh, by economies of scale, actually, unfortunately. Which is the next largest uh, country that kids are getting transported to? So that's a great question. And we don't really know. Uh, we think it's Germany. Uh, but it also uh, uh, the UK has a has a very big problem, as does Australia. So it's it, it, it's really hard to measure. And that's one of the problems with the statistics around this issue. It's very hard to get these predators to take surveys about their business. <laughs> so this is a this is an underground economy that happens you know, primarily below the waterline where people can't see it. So if you if you think about it in the terms of thinking about narcotics or weapons proliferation, when we say, well, we we have a rough idea of how big those economies are, the reality is, is we actually have no idea. Everybody does studies in a different way and they all reach different numbers. And so when we talk about, you know, this this slavery economy, it's currently being touted as a hundred and fifty billion dollar industry. I have a really hard time believing that when I first started doing this work in 2013, it was, it was being called a $32 billion industry. So how did it get that big that fast? Well, the reality is it, is it didn't, but it doesn't matter because if the fact that there's any industry, the fact that there's any economy, the fact that we even have to have this conversation, that's the problem. And that's where we need to be focused and getting everybody involved in this fight next question is from papa chubby how can we join the fight against this problem <laughs> ties right in what you just said that that's a uh that's a great question i get a lot uh the first would be to think about about the slavery economy just like any other economy and 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 business these predators have to contact their prey online so if you work in social media or you work for an online platform or a company that that's in the trust and safety business, what are you doing to counter this? And if you're not doing anything, reach out. We can, we can help you figure that out. If you're in banking, what are you doing to keep the predators out of, of your, your bank? If you accept payments, if you are uber if you are airbnb uh who we work with who does a phenomenal job if you're marriott if you're any company that provides services to people as they travel especially for business chances are human traffickers are using your platform so that would be the first thing is start there the second thing uh, yes the your human transporters uh the second thing i would say is if you're a parent 
be a good parent. That that right there is the best thing that you can do to keep your children safe from predators. And, and that that's all forms of predators. Just be a good parent. Uh, and we've got some resources on our on our website at deliverfund.org where you can actually see what you can do. Then the next would be uh, if you have some disposable income uh, and you have a philanthropy budget, please donate to the organizations that are doing this kind of work. Obviously, I'm biased towards us at Deliver Fund, but there are plenty of good organizations, maybe even in your local community, that are providing services to victims, uh, that are helping the law enforcement officers who are doing this work. Uh, and then really the last piece is, uh, because it's it's not doing as much, but it's very important, and that's to consistently share information from accounts because Sean, you are the one who brought it up that the, uh, I think you called it the, the algorithmic strangulation, uh, which is an absolutely phenomenal term. I'm going to steal that, uh, from you. That's the best term I've heard for it. Uh, it, it, it really reduces the, uh, the spread of information and the spread of facts. Unfortunately, it seems that the conspiracies spread like wildfire but the real information has a very hard time getting it out there. So, so follow, uh, you know, accounts like Sean's where you're getting this kind of information and then distribute it to your friends and family so that we can make sure everybody is educated about the problem. And that's essentially the cycle on how you can get involved and you can get involved starting anywhere in that cycle and just follow the loop around. Yeah, we had a discussion with Nick about algorithmic strangulation before he came on, and he did a video recently on a subject we have covered and we got a strike for. Um, but what he said was, because of the phraseology used in that video, it, it barely got any traction. But it's even worse than that. So you've got artificial intelligence looking at all the language we're using right now, for example, restricting mm -hmm. the video. But if you agitate the artificial intelligence to a degree there's a threshold if you cross over you can wake up and your platform is gone so that is why we have to weigh our words very carefully to um get these important messages out there we have gone through that twice already on this channel and i don't want to go through it again the other thing is you know nick you mentioned parents having responsibility for their kids I agree with that entirely but having about to have a kid a baby you know i'm thinking ahead there's going to be times when I've got to go and do things and perhaps, you know, me and my partner are going to go out and leave the kid with a babysitter or mm. we're going to leave it with uh, family members, for example. Two things here I want to highlight then. So you said it's mostly people you know who do these things. Say, you know, you leave it with a trusted family member, but then some other family members come over who you've not vetted and, you, you, you know, who could access the kid and you wouldn't even know. And the other thing is if you have, like, a babysitter should you have like cameras in the house watching your kid at all times in the hope that that will prevent anything from happening i think so i'm a big believer that if you are a parent you should do whatever you feel comfortable doing making sure that your child is protected and we do need to understand that children have no right to privacy. And thank God, because if my parents had not intervened in my in my life, I mean, I was a uh, I was an orphan 
who was then adopted uh, later in life uh, by a, but I was, I was still a toddler by a wonderful family. So statistically, what are the chances that I was going to have some problems later in life? And I did. And my parents, they, they got involved and they made sure that those issues did not turn into lifelong problems. They didn't say, oh, well, we're just going to let Nick be Nick. No, they got involved. And I think that that is, that's the biggest thing that parents can do. So if, if what you feel comfortable doing is putting cameras in your house, you should do that. If what you feel comfortable doing is making sure that your, uh, your nanny has her location services on, on her phone, that you can track her every time she's with your child, then, then you should do that. Uh, you, right. It, it, the child is your responsibility. So you should do everything in your power to, uh, to feel comfortable with the level of safety that you're providing to your child. So the next question ties into another theme that was in the sound of freedom. He's expressly stated that he was chosen, moved over from terrorism to going after the transporters because mm -hmm. he was a man of faith. And they knew that when he was watching these videos, the trauma would be cushioned by his faith. So one of the viewers here, Carolyn, is asking if you are a man of faith like Tim Ballard and how on earth do you cope and have a life dealing with these situations? That's a, a great question. Yes, uh, I believe Tim is a, a Mormon, if I am correct. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but me personally, I'm a strong Bible-believing Christian. And I wasn't always that way. Uh, there were some uh, some moments in in combat that that caused me to to reevaluate my uh, existential beliefs. But uh, that very much is is helpful because I believe that if you are doing something that God is calling you to do, God is not going to call you to do it to your detriment. Uh, and he he actually says in the Bible that that he will work all things for your good. So if God has called me to fight modern slavery, he will protect me to make sure that I do not have a, a significant detriment to my life by doing that. I think it's only when we get outside of that will and we get off the path, so to speak, that we end up with severe consequences. I think you've piqued the viewer's interest now, Nick. Are you able to elaborate on the moment that gave you the existential crisis? I, w I wish it was just one moment. Uh, there were, let me see, I was in three different helicopter crashes. I was in uh, a, a military freefall uh, uh, accident, uh, which actually gave me some pretty significant traumatic brain injury. Uh, multiple times when I should have died, but didn't. Uh, and and it, you know, the first time that those things happen, the first, it, you know, your life does not flash before your eyes. You just you just have a sudden realization like, oh, this is it. And, and believe it or not, you're relatively calm about it, uh, especially when you've been through that that much training. But it, it after a while, I think it was probably the like eighth or ninth deployment where I started really wondering how many times I was going to be able to roll these dice without <laughs> without suffering some consequences. And then and, and I wasn't even 30 years old yet. So then you start having some very difficult conversations with yourself, which is well, when I die, what does that mean? Am I just, am I just done or am I going to go somewhere or, you know, and so I, I started doing a lot of research and, uh, landed, uh, I'm a big math and science and physics guy. And I, I think 
physics uh, points to the existence of God. And so I um, started started wrestling with that issue. And then it, it really took me a couple of years because I was one of those people who thought that, uh, you know, he, I, was, I was too smart to believe in God, right? smart people don't believe in, you know, some mythical person in the sky. I mean, and, and that, that's, that was the way I was looking at it, which obviously was a, it was a very much an oversimplification of, of the faith issue. And so I was on deployments reading about, uh, reading about uh, what one had to decide whether or not God did exist. And if God does exist, which God, Right. Because there's so many of them in, in the, uh, you know, in, in man's mind. So wh which one is the real one and, and had to go through that process. And and so it wasn't a one specific issue. It was actually after the issues, I was on a plane ride back to uh, back to Iraq. And I was in one of the I was in Kirkuk, Iraq, which is kind of the, the pivot point of the war. In, in Iraq, one of the most dangerous places on the on 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 the earth at the time, and we were doing some some very sporty operations, and I I was on the plane, starting thinking about these things. Like you don't have, for lack of a better term, come to Jesus moments in combat because you're focused on surviving. You're focused you're focused on making sure it's them and not you. You don't really have those situations then. It's after the fact when things have calmed down and you've had an ability to, to kind of start processing things. And so I was thinking about, OK, I'm getting ready to go back. And um, because of a set of circumstances with a loss of, of a teammate, uh, I had to go back sooner than we had thought. And we had just lost somebody from the team who was uh, actually my assistant team leader a little bit before uh, he had transitioned over to Afghanistan and got blown up and. So I started having those conversations and uh, ultimately I landed on uh, obviously the God of the Bible and, and Christianity. Nick, out of all of those situations, which was the one that brought you closest to death? Uh oh, um, the closest was uh, I was in, I was in Afghanistan and we were getting ready to turn down this road. We were on our, on our way to, um, on our way to a place to do a thing. And we were in, uh, um, a very low profile setup. So we, we were trying to just look like we were part of the local population and we were getting ready to turn down this, 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 kind of not really an alleyway, but not really a road, kind of a combination in between as, as you, you tend to have in Afghanistan. And, and right as soon as we started to turn and the nose of, of the vehicle was actually into the turn. And I just, something was weird. I think back on it now and I, I realized what it was, but something was weird. And I just had this gut feeling. And I said, and I told the guy driving one of my teammates, I said, stop, uh, uh, turn left, go straight. And so when, when you're in those types of situations, nobody questions you in the moment. If you, if you make a call, anybody on the team can make a call like that. And then you just automatically execute, deal with it later. And about three seconds later, a massive VBID, uh, so vehicle borne in, uh, improvised explosive device went off um, so big that it ended up uh, causing, you know, catastrophic damage to buildings around it. We for sure would have died. There was no, 
we would have gotten lucky. Um, that that wouldn't have happened. We for sure would have died. And and by you know, I'll I'll attribute it to some some divine intervention. Uh, we just knew we shouldn't go down that road. Um, and that was that was the one where I would say it was the closest call. Um, the other things other situations I was in helicopter crashes or whatnot. When you look at it, it was understandable why nothing happened because say the engineering of the helicopter that was designed to crash and, and that, you know, rounds that end up missing you or, or whatever. Um, but, but that was the one where it was literally seconds, seconds away from us blowing up. And there was obviously somebody watching, uh, and somebody initiating that bomb and the obviously the reason they initiated it was because we had already turned so they knew and they've got markers uh these bad guys do so they know that when you hit a certain marker that's when they need to initiate the bomb in order to get it to blow up at the right time that it gets you so we had already started to turn they obviously thought they had us and then we turned out and yeah didn't didn't uh didn't die so how do you process that for the rest of that day? Do you rethink your occupation? Do you go into shock? You, uh, you don't, you, you just continue mission. You don't, you don't think about that. And at that point, that was probably my, you know, I was in the twenties of deployments at that point. So I'd been to, I'd been, uh, I'd been to this location twice. Uh, so other things like that had happened, but nothing where it was that close. Uh, and you don't really, uh, you don't process it in the moment because you've got a job to do and getting distracted by the past, because if it, if it happened a second ago, it's in the past, getting distracted by the past is actually going to get you or somebody else killed. And in that line of work, you're not so much afraid of yourself dying. You're afraid that you might make a mistake that leads to somebody else's death. And then you have to live with that. And that that's a very, very difficult thing that I've watched a number of friends have to live through. So you, you want to keep your mind right and stay on, stay on mission so that you can be there for your buddies to your right and left. In the crash situations then, I imagine there's nothing you can do except for brace, get into a certain position, or yeah. is it is is it all over so fast that? No, no, that's actually the the hard part about helicopter crashes is you've got some time to think about it. Uh, oh wow! And so, or, or the same thing with 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 free fall accidents. You know, I had a parachute that didn't open uh, on a, a free fall what? training jump, and and you're like, oh well, I mean, you're hurtling towards the ground at you know 120, 130 miles an hour, and you're trying to think about, okay, well, how do I solve this problem? And at least then you have emergency procedures and you're dealing with a problem, getting your reserve shoot out and things like that. But uh, in the helicopter, you're not flying, you know, as special operators, we don't sit in seats. We're just floor loaded, which means we're just tethered into the helicopter and just sitting on the floor in the back, um, usually with our legs hanging out. And so I remember the first time it happened, I, I started thinking to myself, okay, we're going to, cr we're going to crash. Hopefully this pilot can land on the belly because uh, MH60s are made to land uh, to, for their landing gear, essentially to collapse and help to, to cushion the crash. Uh, I'd had a couple of friends who died uh, about six months after I joined the pararescue teams. Uh, they ended up dying in, hel in helicopter crashes. So I figured that, but I also knew people who had lived. 
uh, as other people on my team had. So I, I was trying to make this decision about whether or not I should be on my stomach or on my back when the helicopter crashed. I knew I didn't want to be sitting up because I didn't want to collapse my spine. So I, I, I rolled onto my stomach and then I was like, oh no, it'd probably be better for me to be on my back. So I flipped onto my back and then back onto my stomach. And then I, and then for some reason I decided again to flip onto my back. And so on, as I was turning the helicopter crashed and I actually ended up being on my side when the helicopter crashed. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, that's the thing about helicopter crashes is they're not and aircraft crashes. They're not sudden you you're falling out of the sky. And as you are falling out of the sky, you have time to think about, uh, about what you're going to do about it. Why was it falling out of the sky in the first place? Uh, there was a, a set of circumstances that I'm sure the military would not be happy about me getting into um, that caused the helicopter um, to, to lose its, its flight capability. Uh, helicopters are not like airplanes. Uh, they're kind of anomalies and the fact that they fly in the first place. So you have to, when, when the, the power required for a helicopter exceeds the power available, they have the flight characteristics of a safe. So they just literally just fall out of the sky uh, and uh, helicopter pilots can do a thing called auto rotation if they have uh, enough altitude. In our case, we were flying pretty low to the ground because we were try to trying to avoid enemy fire. And so they didn't have enough, uh, enough altitude to auto rotate. Uh, fortunately, we had some pretty good forward airspeed and they were able just to, to set it down on the deck and it ripped all kinds of stuff off the outside of the helicopter, but everybody inside was fine. So you were on your side. What happened next as it landed? So it, it landed. We all got obviously um, uh, pretty banged up and then it's just a matter of like, oh, okay, I'm alive. Uh, okay, well, what about what about my teammate? Is he alive? Okay, yes. All right, well, now let's go look at the air crew. Uh, are they alive? Yes. And then everybody just walked away. And we, you don't know if the helicopter is going to blow up or something. So we all, we all got out of there, um, made sure everybody got out of the helicopter. We got a couple hundred yards away. And then we all just stood there in a group staring at the thing like, wow, what, what just happened? Uh, versus another one that I was a party to where I was not in the helicopter. I was fast roping out of the helicopter and all of a sudden something, and I've, I've fast roped hundreds of times at this point. And all of a sudden something was weird and the rope was weird and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I hit the ground a whole lot harder than I normally did. And the rope got ripped from my hands and I watched the helicopter crash into a, into a canal, uh, about, you know, probably 50 yards away from me. And so that one, uh, I actually wasn't in the helicopter. I was sliding, sliding down a rope as it, uh, uh, as the helicopter was, uh, was crashing. So during these life and death moments, then is there a certain, like, do you, do you think of your, your wife and kids or what, what, what does it something appear in your head? Anything appear in your head? Uh, no, at the time I was single. And so uh, an important thing to understand is that when you're in military special ops, as, as an example, and, and somewhat at my unit at the CIA, it, it's also important to distill the myth that the Central Intelligence Agency is all a bunch of Jason Bournes. Um, I try to tell people I'm a whole lot more like Forrest Gump than, than Jason Bourne. But there, there, are, there are only two units at the CIA where we have people who are trained fighters, trained shooters, and they carry guns in anger 
against the enemies of the of the United States, and I got the good fortune of being in one of those units as a as an as an operative. And so, when you're in those units, all anybody ever talks about is the last person who died. And when you are in training in military special ops, and it doesn't matter what branch or or what special operations career field, uh, and and really in any country, all you ever hear about and study is people dying. And this person did this operation and were posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor or, um, you know, the the equivalent uh, in in the UK. It's that's all you ever hear about. So and again, two of my best friends uh, were very, very close uh, pararescuemen. We went through through school together. One was in one helicopter, one was in the other helicopter and the two helicopters crashed. And, and that was six months out of PJ school. And there had already been three other pararescue men who died by the time they had died. So all you're constantly dealing with is people dying in what is you know, some of the most dangerous occupations in the world. So you just assume your number is going to come up. And I didn't think I would make it to 30. And then I made it to 30. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to make it to 40. And then I made it to 40. And I figured, well, I, I better start getting my life together. God, this is mind-blowing. So as you're losing colleagues then, mm-hmm. is it a case of there's like a law of diminishing returns in terms of emotional reaction each time it yes. happens until you're desensitized? Yes, uh, unfortunately. And that's something that I've really had to work hard to overcome and kind of get myself back because when you are in, when you're a special operator or you're in my, my unit at, that I was in at the Central Intelligence Agency, you are programmed, for lack of a better term, to perform. And they pour millions of dollars into making you perform. And so when you're in those environments and then you're surrounded by people who are, you're trying to be better than, uh, it's kind of like when you look at, some people are unicorns and herds of donkeys and some people are unicorns and herds of racehorses and some people are unicorns in herds of unicorns and the special ops community is very much that it is it's the best and brightest the military has to offer people who are specially selected beating the odds of 90% attrition and not getting hurt which you obviously can't really control uh, and not just having a bad day so you've got a bunch of people who are not only not only beating the odds, but are also just getting lucky. You put that many people uh, with that kind of um, that kind of uh, strenuous selection in one group, and good things are going to happen. The problem, though, is that you learn to tamper uh, your emotions to the point that you no longer really have them. So if you have a friend who dies on a target, you can't cry about it. You can't feel anything about it. You can throw that, throw his body over your, over your shoulder and get him back to the fob. That's it. And as a pararescue man, you know, our, our whole job was to go to work when things went wrong. So there was always somebody with holes in them. There was always somebody who, experienced a massive deceleration injury or was trapped in the mountains. So you're just constantly learning to, uh, to, to, to temp that emotion. 
And you do, as you said, get this diminishing return where the first time that happens, obviously you're, you're shedding, you're shedding tears by the time you've lost 10, 15, 20 people, 20 colleagues, you no longer kind of really feel anything. Uh, you want to be helpful to the families, but you don't, you don't even feel the pain of loss. And that's one of the problems with especially your special ops vets as, as they get out is that they're always busy performing and then they leave and all of a sudden you don't have to perform anymore. And now you're forced to sit with the box of things that you kept closed for two decades and eventually that box is going to burst open. And if you don't learn how to deal with that, it's going to, it's going to lead to some, going to lead to some problems. Throw then on top of that, all of the physical injuries, the undiagnosed traumatic brain injuries and, and those types of things. So it took me a good five years to get to the point I am now, which is, uh, which is very healthy. And were it not for, uh, were it not for my wife, uh, there's no way uh, and, and helping me through that and actually pointing out some of the things that were wrong, there's no way I would have, um, I would have gotten healthy. Which brings me to the next question, which was indeed about the box. So on the surface, then, you know, you're desensitized, you're not showing emotion, but aren't you compounding internal trauma to the point where the floodgate could break and you could just melt down? Mm -hmm. Or, as, as is the case amongst any of the, uh, not just the military in general, but predominantly amongst your special operators who fought in the, in the war, uh, in, in the global war, you, they end, you end up with these very high suicide rates because mm -hmm. eventually without help, they can't get to the bottom of it. And so if you have somebody who is very self-reliant. And that's another thing that special operators are, are specifically selected for is their ability to be self-reliant. Well, if your whole identity is this professional tough guy who's self-reliant, then you don't ask for help. You start then figuring out how to deal with things yourself. So the drugs and alcohol uh, uh, lane seem to be a pretty good one in a way that you can start self-medicating and, and, and you know keeping the box closed. And then it just compounds. And then the next thing you know, you have people who are either eventually reaching out for help or their buddies step in and, and help, them, uh, help them to get healthy or they put a bullet in their brain. That's so sad. We've gone on a fascinating detour here. I need to get back to the questions because quite yeah. a few have come in. Um, Linda says, you know, you've given advice to adults about the human transporters what advice would you give to kids when it comes uh, to the human transporters? Every parent and every child listen very carefully. No person can fill every need in your life. So especially if you are a young girl and you have somebody who's contacting you online and they are promising to solve all your problems, it's too good to be true and you need to run. And that doesn't matter whether it's the child predators or it's just somebody who's promising you uh, the ability to make a bunch of money off of a off cryptocurrency, as in you know the pig butchering or things like that. It is any person who is who is online who's randomly contacting you and is giving you uh, the opportunity to have all of your problems solved through them 
only means you harm and you need to run away. Indeed. All right, Caroline is I said, do you think this new brain treatment for kids with ADHD will be used to help deprogram the kids who have been transported to recover? So does pharma have a role in helping kids recover from the transporters? I believe so, but using the term pharma, my fear is that there are so many good drugs that are natural specifically within uh, the psychedelic realm or what we traditionally refer to as the psychedelic realm that are going to be squashed because big pharma can't make a bunch of money from them. And so I do believe that there are, uh, there are, there are lanes for, for pharma to drive in here. I also uh, I know I personally, were it not for pharmacology, um, my traumatic brain injury would be a whole lot worse. Uh, and I'm on drugs that make me a lot better. So so there, there's a lane there, but I do think that we need to be very clear about what problem it is we're trying to solve and actually help pharma solve those problems as opposed to them creating a drug and then saying, oh, yeah, by the way, you can use it to solve this problem when, when it really doesn't. I'll answer this question. Is, is the algorithm affected by chat using prohibited words? Yeah, people, if you put words in the chat that aren't algorithmically friendly, that can cause problems if you're not abiding by YouTube's community guidelines. Sometimes you see people's chats getting bombed with the N-word, and that's like people trying to get that person's channel in trouble. All right, next question is from Deborah. What do you look for to know if a little person is being transported? Mm. There's a number of, of signs and there's really, there's really too many to, to list, but I'll give you some general context to look for. If you have, if you have a, if, so let, let's look at it 12 years old, zero to 12 years old and then 12 years old and older. So zero to 12 years old, if it's, if it's on the child exploitation side, it's going to be a child who oftentimes knows the person that is is abducting them or is exploiting them and they they trust that person so you're not really going to see any signs uh, if you're a, a school teacher a social worker or somebody like that you might see some signs of physical abuse uh, but the biggest sign of mental uh, the biggest mental sign of abuse is a, a, a child who just checks out who just is just no longer there. They're not talking to anybody. They, it almost appears as if uh, maybe they're on the spectrum or, or there might be something wrong with them. Um, that's, that's zero to 12. Now 12 to let's call it, you know, really any age uh, 12 to 22, what you're going to see is somebody who is under an abnormal control by somebody in a position of power. So keep in mind, a position of power could just be a parent. Parents, there a lot of parents uh, end up, uh, or within the child exploitation cycle, end up actually selling their children or renting their children out to cover drug debts. So if you have, so that is somebody who's in a position of power over over that child. So if you have somebody who who the child appears to be under abnormal control that is a that's a warning flag uh, and then if you have an adult or somebody who appears to be an adult who seems to be under abnormal control of somebody else they won't right the they won't the 
the victim won't speak for themselves. Somebody always speaks for them, uh, always answers questions for them. They, they have to ask for permission the, to do something as simple as go use the bathroom. Um, they are always looking at the ground, uh, when they're with that individual, things like that. Um, it, again, it, it'll be very clear an abnormal control by somebody who appears to have power over that person. You've, you've got a problem. Next question is from Sego. Why don't secret services train a specific sector of agents to deal with this matter? It seems like they have a not our problem attitude towards it. Surely more could be done. Absolutely right. And that's the biggest question I have. Why do we not have a counter human or a counter modern slavery uh, agency uh, in any of, especially the westernized English speaking countries? Uh, We have a a, a drug enforcement agency, yet 90% of drugs are legal, yet we spend double digit billions of dollars a year fighting the war on drugs. And how's that going? Uh, We have a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms in America. Alcohol, tobacco and firearms are all legal. Firearms is actually a constitutionally protected right. Yet we have an entire law enforcement agency that goes after people after the illicit sale of what are legal commodities. One hundred percent of modern slavery is illegal so why are why don't we have anybody uh, any agency in any country who has a centralized focus on that issue? So that's a great question and I don't have an answer to it other than to say it's on us, the society. Our politicians are tools to be used to fix problems. And if they do not fix those problems, then they need to be thrown out and a new tool needs to be put in its place. Um, and that's not to diminish our politicians as humans. It's just that's the reality. So we are not making a big enough stink about this issue to get the politicians to be afraid of not addressing it. That, I think, is the biggest reason why we don't have a centralized effort to fighting this problem. Yeah, I think a lot of my viewers are frustrated because they see people commit certain crimes um, a lot of it revolving around drugs and people getting huge sentences. And then they see some of these transporters and adults attracted to kids where they've got like dozens, some of them have hundreds of victims and they just get very short sentences. And you mm-hmm. would think that the government and the politicians and society would prioritize the protection of women and kids in particular. Crimes against them should be absolutely at the top, but it, it just doesn't, they don't seem to count nowhere near as much. They don't. And so what I would, every single person who's listening to this, do this exercise anytime you talk to a politician and preferably do it in public. Ask Mm -hmm. them about the modern slavery and child exploitation issue and if it's important to them. And every single one is going to say, oh, yes, there's going to be lots of wringing of hands and mashing of teeth about how important it is. And then the next question you should ask is, that's excellent. Show me the budget line item where you are funding the fight against modern slavery and and child exploitation. Because if they didn't allocate funds for it, I mean, we'll allocate funds for planting grass and trees in medians in America between, you know, between lanes of cars for beautification because that's important to us. 
well, so if it's truly important to that politician, then where is the money that they're allocating to fight the problem? In America, we spend about $22 million a year on last I, I saw fighting this problem. That's less than a dollar per victim globally. So very clearly, we don't care about the problem. Otherwise, we would be allocating funding to it. Well said. That's something we've been we're trying to reiterate for, for a long time now. Um, Sanya is wondering whether it's domestic law or international law failing law enforcement efforts for this matter. Always domestic. Uh, one of the things that I like to help everybody understand is there's no such thing as international law. And anybody who doesn't believe me, uh, go try to have the Taliban arrested for any number of the international laws that they are breaking. Uh, it's international law does not exist. It is domestic law enforcement in various countries that agree to collaborate and agree to make their laws and policies align. But um, it's it's always domestic law. So every person listening, if they are, again, back to the politicians, it's not law enforcement's fault and problem that we are not getting to the bottom of this issue. Law enforcement officers are their soldiers. They do what they're told. They can't just go out and start start investigations because they feel like it. They have a chain of command they have to answer to. Uh, and the same thing with police police chiefs. They're the generals, right? They follow the orders of the politicians appointed over them. We've got to hold our politicians accountable for properly funding this fight and, and making this fight a priority. So this is going to be controversial now. Because this is, you know, you go back 100 years, people are getting sterilized. Um, what about a license to actually be a parent? Would that be worth the end? <laughs> you know, that's never going to happen. I'm going to go ahead and skip that one. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's go to the next one then. Um, what can we tell our children what to do if they were getting a situation where they feel they are getting manipulated and trapped? I think first you've got to teach children what manipulation is. And even then it will be very difficult to, to get them to identify it just based on the fact that they are children. We know manipulation, especially as we get older as adults, because we've experienced it. And many of us have some bad stories uh, to tell because of that manipulation. So I think what we want to do is we want to first tell our, our children what it is, but they're most likely not going to, uh, uh, not going to recognize it. It's more important just to help them understand that if they get into any trouble in any situation, the best thing that they can do is to come to an authority figure that they trust. And hopefully that's you as a parent. Uh, my children know that no matter what they did, even if they're the ones who burnt the house to the ground, uh, they are not going to get in trouble for telling me what they did. In fact, if anything, uh, they'll get in a lot less trouble. So, so establishing that trust that you are there to help them navigate difficult situations, not to yell at them if they do something that is potentially scary in the eyes, of, in, you know, in, in your eyes as a parent. So question from Papa Chubby, can Nick tell us about a typical slavery mission and has he had to use violence? Ah, so a typical mission, the way that this works, uh, I am just a, a former uh, 
I'm a former shooter who now uses computers. Uh, the keyboard is the weapon for, for me and my team. But the way that this works is traffickers advertise online. And I can say how we do this because we create a Hobson's choice for the for for the the slave owner. They cannot. They have to advertise in order to do business at the scale they need to do business at in order to make the money that they need to make. It's that simple. So they have to advertise just like any other business. That is essentially the top of their sales funnel, and that is also the Achilles' heel of the predator because we exploit those advertisements in order to figure out who's behind them and which ones are associated with this issue and we we pull those into our computers by the billions and then have algorithms that crawl through them to find the signal we're looking for and then we pass that signal along to law enforcement. Now, law enforcement oftentimes uh, uses violence in order to uh, in order to bring down the perpetrator, but that's nothing that's nothing that we do anymore. Uh, and after again, after 30 combat deployments and hundreds and hundreds of, of operations, I uh, I've rolled those dice so many times that now it's up to the new generation of law enforcement. That's quite frankly, better, faster and stronger than I am. So I know we've focused on kids primarily, sound of freedom, et cetera. But Jeffrey Thompson is asking, if you're saying any age, could this also mean that adults are being exploited by these groups? Yes. So if we look at the see, the the forced labor happening in the South China Sea or uh, in, off shipping vessels, that's predominantly men. And it's predominantly older men, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even. Same thing in the uh, the the brick kilns. And then if we go to the forced labor that's manufacturing furniture in Malaysia that might even be in your house, uh, that's going to be predominantly older men uh, with those skills and older women with those skills. Um, and then we can go into parts of India where we've got children making rugs that are then being sold in, in Western markets uh, all the way down to, as we talked about, the commercial sex markets uh, within the Westernized countries. So anywhere that you a person can defraud, force, or coerce another person into doing something for their economic benefit, being the perpetrator's economic benefit, you're going to have you're going to have a problem and that can happen at at any age all the way to some of the things that we saw in ukraine which was surrogacy based where they were purposely impregnating women and then having the women deliver the babies and then selling off the babies for adoption whoa good grief nick we've got tons of questions come in but we've run out of time this has been endlessly fascinating, but more importantly, man, honestly, of all the guests we have on, who's actually doing stuff in the real world to protect kids? And it, it, I, I can just tell by the people watching this and the questions that have come in, how engaged people are. And we just absolutely salute you for your wonderful work you're doing. And I can't imagine how many lives you've saved and turned around and people you've got away from these horrible transporters. So just uh, finally, can you just let the viewers know where they can uh, support you and find you? Yes, so you can find me uh, at Deliver Fund. 
uh, that's uh, the organization that I created that that does this day in and day out. Uh, if you uh, have the means to support us, please do at a bare minimum uh, share the uh, the content that we put out. And you can find me uh, on Instagram at the dot nick. That's n i c dot mckinley, m c k i n l e y, and on YouTube and the other platforms at the nick mckinley. Uh, no dots. Well, we hope to see you again at some point. Good luck with what you're doing and be be careful with the algorithmic strangulation. Take care, my friend. All right. Thank you, Sean. Cheers. Bye.